Isaiah chapter 18. We have before us the God of nations. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He may have called, and he certainly did, call Nebuchadnezzar a king of kings, because that great king destroyed many other kings, but God was truly his king, because he put him out to pasture for seven years, the greatest monarch on earth in God's opinion. We have before us some obscure chapters, some obscure verses. I'm going to go through them rather quickly. Some of you will be disappointed, others of you will understand that I want to get through these chapters and give you as much profit from them as possible, and yet not distract you by looking at the details too long. Right. Especially chapter 18, which is before us first. It's the most obscure chapter in the book of Isaiah. If you were to read it and want to settle on a solution for each of its nouns, you would find that it's a very different, and verbs, the actions that are there, you'll find it's very difficult. I've done the best that I can, and I thank the Lord for the way He leads us and helps us. So many are confused by it. They say that it's hopeless. But there were certain events taking place back then that we can line up with these chapters. Now, there were a lot of events that took place back then. A lot of international conflict, a lot of wars and a lot of battles fought, and a lot of kings named over hundreds of years of time. And so some of these prophecies could have a different solution. I'm not going to say a second solution. I'm going to say a different one because the Lord had one in mind. But the points are still going to be the same, that God's the God of nations. And that God expects His creatures and His nations to obey Him, and He punishes those that don't. And those nations that mess with His nation, the nation of Israel, or particularly Judah at this time, He would judge them. So we come to Isaiah chapter 18. I trust that because of the preparatory email sent to you yesterday, you have already read this chapter, and so I will read it in pieces and explain it to you. Isaiah chapter 18 is Egypt and Ethiopia joining together and falling to God's scourge of Assyria that he then defeated for Ethiopia's deliverance, who then brought a gift to him in Jerusalem. I read the first two verses, which is each Egypt and Ethiopia joining forces. Woe to the land, shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. And amen. There are many things that could be said, and I could take all day on chapter 18, but I am not going to do that. Woe! There is trouble coming for the land that is mentioned in verse 1, and there's a people in verse 2, and the land of verse 1 sends ambassadors to the people of verse 2, so we have two nations. 
right there we already differ from the commentators because they want to make it one nation. They want to get rid of the word saying because it's in italics in verse 2 so that it is just a description of one nation. Sorry, but we trust every word of God and so we have two nations. This first nation, we want to look at the fact that it's a land shadowing with wings. When we look in the Bible, wings that shadow are wings of protection. The wings of a mother hen over its birds. And so this is a nation that provides protection and shelter for other nations. Was there a nation that used bulrushes and was in the midst of waters that did that, that Israel was constantly looking to for help? Egypt. Is she beyond the rivers of Ethiopia? Now this is a very interesting combination here. Beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Yes, she is. Because Egypt, when we find her in the Bible, and I am not turning you to a multitude of verses or we're going to take too long on this chapter and the, the one following. We're going to do them both before break. So you want me to hurry up. Egypt usually had in confederation with them the Libyans and the Moors, common words, about those nations west of the Nile. Libya is west of the Nile. And the Moors, it's Cyrene by city. It's Alexandria by city on maps or in the times of the Bible. And they, that is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now, it's called the river of Egypt, the Nile. It's called the rivers of Egypt, the Nile. It's called the rivers of Ethiopia. And actually, the Nile is made up of two large rivers. The White Nile that comes from Lake Victoria in Uganda and the Blue Nile which is 75% of the water flow that comes from Lake Tana in Ethiopia. And it's a fascinating study. You know, there has never been a generation like ours. You can type in those words, Blue Nile, and read until your eyes weep about the Blue Nile. Why is it called the Blue Nile? Because in times of flooding, it takes so much topsoil out of Ethiopia that it is blue, nearly black in color, and dumps it in Egypt. So there's constantly a transfer of the wealth of soil from the highlands of Ethiopia into the Nile Delta. And that Nile Delta is 150 by 250 miles. It's phenomenal what's down there, but it's been brought 3,000 miles in the Nile River in its time of flooding. And see, here we go. We're off track a little bit, but it says the rivers, and it says rivers in both verses because they're the rivers of Ethiopia and it's the river of Egypt, and it's the rivers that spoiled Ethiopia because the second nation is in verse 2, and that's Ethiopia. And Egypt is sending ambassadors to them. At this time, this is the 25th dynasty of Egypt, and that may not mean very much to you, but for 100 years, Ethiopian kings, pharaohs, Somaticus, also known as Pharaoh, ruled Egypt. It's called, it's the 25th dynasty for a hundred years. And guess who was king right in the middle of it? Hezekiah. And so when, you know what chapter 20 is about, remember? Chapter 20 is the Egyptians and the Ethiopians being together because they were confederate because the Ethiopians had taken over Egypt for a hundred years. And it's called the 25th dynasty 
of Egypt. We have to keep moving. Egypt sent ambassadors to get Ethiopia with them because an enemy was coming from the north. And that enemy coming from the north was Assyria. And they needed to get ready for that. And there were efforts made to get Judah involved in that protection. Because if Judah fell, if Israel fell, Israel was a buffer between Assyria and Egypt. You know this, don't you? From the Seleucids of Syria and the Ptolemies of Egypt and their constant fighting in the book of Daniel, Israel's right in the middle. And that is why we are told about these events of world history, though the rest of the nations of the world, God ignores. Because they don't matter. The nations that matter in the world are the ones right around that little nation of His, the people of God. Verse 1, I'm sorry, yes, yes, I've gone through every single word. Verse 1 is Egypt, verse 2 is Ethiopia. Yes, there are ways that each one of those clauses can be applied to Ethiopia. The last one, with the exclamation point, I want to say to you, because the message sent to them is that the rivers spoil them, because the river takes the topsoil of Ethiopia and puts it in Egypt. And so much so in the water, when it floods and covers its banks, it, lay, it leaves a layer of the richest stuff you can ever grow in. Right. And all you have to do is scatter seed and let your animals loose to push those seeds down in the muck, and it grows. And the Lord's going to take that away in chapter 19, which I believe you've read as well in preparation. So we come after the first two verses to verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye. When he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest, and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs, and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Verses 3 and 4 our God raising up the Assyrian army. We have had a muster call like this several times already in the first 17 chapters. I hope you remember them. Flip back to chapter 13 so that we can see the one issued to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 4. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. And so these words spoken to Isaiah are calling the nations together. So there is an army of Assyrians coming. The Egyptians have sent ambassadors to the Ethiopians to get ready. Who is the king of Ethiopia and of Egypt right now? We're going to encounter his name. It's in the Bible. It's Turhaka. And so the Lord is mustering the northern army of Assyrians with the prophetic similitude language of verse 3. And the Lord tells Isaiah in verse 4 what he's going to do. I am going to sit back and watch this. An army's being raised in the south. An army's being raised in the north. Israel is right in the middle of it. I'm going to sit back and watch this. In fact, I'm going to let my providence bless them. It's going to be like clear heat and like a cloud of dew. 
Clear heat is described in the Bible as the clear shining of the sun after rain, which is very productive of growth. And so I'm going to let my providence allow these two armies to muster great tr numbers of troops together and we'll let them meet and see what happens. This is what, that's verse 4. And Lord, give us that kind of same spirit that when you're in heaven and things are happening on earth, you're sitting back in your dwelling place just observing, and when it looks like they're prospering, it's because you're letting your providence prosper them because you have a plan. Because he has a plan. And the plan comes up in the next two verses. I am not going too fast. I have 32 verses to cover in this first service. If you want more, get more. I'll help you get more. Here is the plan. Verse 5. For, uh, for the harvest, I am going to prosper them. They are going to look like they're growing like weeds. In verses 3 and 4. For, uh, for the harvest... When the bud is perfect, but it's a bud, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. There's going to be plenty of bird food and animal food for summertime creatures and for wintertime creatures because the harvest isn't going to happen. What they intend on both sides is not going to happen the way they thought that it would happen. The Lord says, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to providentially prosper them to have a meeting. But then I am going to cut off the harvest so that there's a lot of corpses but no grapes make it to the vintage. In that time, a present will be brought by Ethiopia, in verse 7, to Mount Zion of the Lord of hosts. But let's go back, because we're going to need this when we come to chapter 20. What happened? Assyria came down and laid siege to Ashdod. Remember chapter 20 and verse 1? Sennacherib came down during the reign of Hezekiah, laid siege to Ashdod of the Philistines, and eventually took it. And he was in the area. And he took the 46 cities, fenced cities, walled cities, of the Israelites that were in Judah. And he took Moab. And he's going to take Arabia. We're going to get to that in chapter 21. And the Lord comes to Isaiah, and Isaiah, they're distraught, because... The Jews, have all, the Jews that survived have fallen back to the city of Jerusalem. Sennacherib has 200,000 captives of the Jews. But the ones that survived fell back to the city of Jerusalem because Sennacherib has taken the fenced or walled cities of Judah. He's in the area and just marauding the place, fulfilling a number of our prophecies. And the Lord comes to Isaiah and tells him, Don't you worry. I'm going to cause him to hear a rumor, and he's going to have to lift the siege, and then I'm going to have a little encounter with him. Okay, what was the rumor? Terhaka of the Ethiopians, 2 Kings 19.9, uh, Isaiah chapter 37. We're going to come up on it again. 
We're going to come up on it again when we get to Isaiah chapter 37 because the importance of these battles and the effect they had on Israel, the church of God of the Old Testament, are enormous. And the Lord wants us to know that He takes care of His people. And I want us to learn to be able to sit back and know that God is in His holy dwelling place and He has a plan for all the nations of the earth. And so Sennacherib hears that Terhaka of the Ethiopians is on his way to war with him. And so they have an encounter. They have an encounter and the Assyrians defeat the Ethiopians and the Egyptians as confederates. And very quickly thereafter, God strikes 185,000 of the Assyrians down in the night and it all happens in a very short space of time because it was the lifting of the siege to give Hezekiah immediate comfort. And then he told him, don't worry. Because, do you remember what Rabshakeh said to Hezekiah when he had to pull the siege? Don't you think that we won't be back. He wasn't back. Because after he defeated the Egyptians and the Ethiopians, he would have gone back and taken Jerusalem down. But he didn't have an army. Because the Lord had taken 185,000 out that night. So the best laid plans of men are, as some have said, but plans of men. Because we have Egypt and Ethiopia in verses 1 and 2, we have an army being mustered in the north called Assyria coming down, meeting. Hezekiah is alive right in the middle of it. God wants the whole world to see this when two armies muster from two extremes. And don't forget, Assyria hates Egypt. Egypt hates Assyria. And the Lord's going to change that before I can finish this sermon. He's going to change that in the last number of verses of chapter 19. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. Why would Egypt and Ethiopia, after being defeated in battle, and having a great number of prisoners taken by Sennacherib, celebrate by bringing a gift? because the army was cut off by the angel of the Lord, so they did not make an invasion into Egypt and Ethiopia. And they did not come back for 20 years. No Assyrian came back into this area for 20 years, because Sennacherib went home with shame of face. There's Isaiah 18. May the Lord bless the feeble efforts to explain it to you. Chapter 19, you say, did Ethiopia really bring a gift? We are not told about Ethiopia's specific gift to the Lord of hosts in Mount Zion, but it was a gift brought to Jerusalem. And when we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, I believe it's chapter 32, and when we read about Hezekiah, because of the great defeat of the Assyrians, and because of Hezekiah being delivered from sickness, fatal sickness, and because the sundial moved backward 10 degrees, All nations brought gifts to Jerusalem and Hezekiah. It tells us that. And so by pulling these different pieces together, including chapter 20, listen, the Lord does not like Egypt. The Lord has good reason for not liking Egypt. What Egypt did to his church in the beginning and what Egypt did after that in trying to seduce Israel to trust them instead of him. And so we come to chapter 19. Because you may ask the question, why is God so obscure in 
Well, I'm going to ask you this. Go to 21.1. I want you to tell me what the burden of the desert of the sea is. I didn't think deserts and seas were the same thing. He's obscure sometimes because he's already laid into this nation. Now he's getting a little creative for you. I mean, he only takes one verse to tell you who it is because it's Elam and Media that's going to go up against it, so it's Babylon. And he tells you that in verse 9 that it's Babylon has fallen, is fallen. And so why would he do that in 18.1? Because in 19.1 he's going to take Egypt to task directly. Egypt to task directly in 19.1. So he's a little obscure in 18.1, and because he loves to see us trusting him. I want to tell you something about humility. Do you want to learn humility? Go into Isaiah 18 and try to figure it out. Go into Isaiah 21, verses 11 and 12, the burden of Duma. Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? You say, well, what else does it say? Nothing. Oh, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. We do the best we can. We trust Him to show us what we don't know. And if He changes our position on anything that we've studied so far, we'll change it, and I'll be the happiest one in here to change it for you. But until then, it makes perfectly good sense with what is happening and the description here given. What nation had shadowing wings to protect Israel? Egypt. Who were they in confederate with during the reign of Hezekiah when Isaiah was prophesying? Ethiopia. It's the 25th dynasty. Did they have a battle with the Assyrians? Yes, because the Bible tells us, and the Bible tells us it was Terhaka of the Ethiopians. You say, well, why doesn't it say the Egyptians? Because they were a confederate nation under one king. A rare event in the history of Egypt. Oh, there's, oh, just go on. Um... All glory to God. Amen. I've spent a work week in chapter 18. I love chapter 18. I want us to always be remembering that the Lord said, I will take my rest. I'm going to sit back and watch this <laughs> because it fulfilled everything. It crushed the help that Israel thought they had in Egypt and then it crushed Assyria who had had a siege on the city of Jerusalem and they were both taken down and the Lord accomplished a great deal. So we come to chapter 19 and it's got seven sections for us about the nation of Egypt. God would judge Egypt. Now this is jumping. You got to remember the this particular section of Isaiah jumps all over. It is if Isaiah made all these different prophecies at different times about different kings and how they were going to be judged, and they were made. Then they were called out and put together in this section from chapter 13 to chapter 24 particularly, but all the way to chapter 34. Now, I read 35 to you this morning, and it, there is a drastic change at 35 about the garden of the gospel, the, the, all of Israel turning into a garden from a gospel standpoint. And so, for instance, when we started in Isaiah 13, it was the burden of Babylon. So we started an event 200 years away. Then we went to events 100 years away of Nebuchadnezzar because Babylon was overthrown by Cyrus the Great of Persia. Just look at that. And then we just looked at events that happened in the lifetime of Isaiah and Hezekiah. 
And so there, it's moving all over the place. And so this one leaps back out to the future. And then it's going to come back in when we get over here to, chapters, to chapter 20. Chapter 20 tells us when it is. But chapter 19 doesn't. It just says the burden of Egypt. But when we go to the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we find out that, oh, the Lord had a great deal in store for that nation by the hands of his servant, Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Nebuchadnezzar all the nations of the earth for the ultimate destruction described in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. However, there were short-term, interim punishments of those nations. We ran into it last Sunday. I hope you remember these things. Do you remember 16, the last two verses? Verse 13, this is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. Verse 13 is describing Nebuchadnezzar, and the verses before it, all the way back to 15.1, are what Nebuchadnezzar would do to Moab. But verse 14 is a separate prophecy saying, Sennacherib, while he's in the area, is going to reduce the glory of Moab. One verse prophecy. Here we go. I hope that we have seven sections to this. Last night in your preparatory email, I gave you a number of chapters to read in, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel about Egypt. And there's a lot of them. There are four chapters together in Ezekiel, 29 through 32, that are ferocious, and they're about Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel prophesied around the same time as Jeremiah, while, while Nebuchadnezzar is on his throne. And they had a message to the nations that God is going to destroy all you nations that try to rebel against my servant. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, and if you rebel against him, he will destroy your nation. If you will submit to him, he will preserve your nation. Just... And, and Jeremiah had a ministry to all those nations. They knew about it. They knew what they had been told. And they knew when it was fulfilled that the hand of the Lord was upon them because they had rebelled against his servant, Nebuchadnezzar. It's phenomenal world history. I wish I could help all of you to embrace it and to love it that our God is in charge of all this. Now the men don't know that. The men are doing what they think they want to in their hearts just like we learned about Sennacherib in chapter 10 of this book. I read the first four verses of Isaiah 19. The burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. And they shall fight every one against his brother, and every one against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. And I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols, and to the charmers, and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards. And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and amen. The first section that we want to take up is the first four verses, God's promise by prophecy through Isaiah to confound the spirit of Egypt. They would lose their heart. They would lose their courage because he was going to undermine them and take away their spirit. That first verse, I hope that you young men will learn prophetic similitudes. A similitude is a long and fancy word for similes 
or comparisons being made with terminology. So many read a verse in the New Testament, for instance, that Jesus is going to come in the clouds. Now, He is going to come in the clouds. But there are some verses that say that where it is figurative, just like it is here. Did God ride a fast cloud? How fast was the cloud? How did He ride it? Did he use a saddle or was it bareback? Was it a bridle or a bit and reins? What did he use? See, it's figurative. But I wish those people that want to make everything literal would look at these passages. You know, this is just like Psalm 18, where David said, When I called unto the Lord, then the earth shook, and the Lord came riding on the heavens to my deliverance. So I just want to share that with you. Look at that first verse. The Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. Did God come into Egypt literally? And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at His presence. Does that mean moved in the shelf three to six inches? Tipped over? What does it mean moved? It's all a similitude. God is going to bring judgment down on Egypt and when they put trust in their idols, they're going to have no answer because God is in charge of Egypt. It's so simple. If we'll learn to read it with the similitudes the prophet said they used. Right. Now, you say, well, why didn't he just say it plainly? Because I love that first verse. I love my God riding on a cloud and coming against my enemies like that. I love Psalm 18 and God riding upon a cloud and coming to deliver his favorite David. Don't you? I don't want some abstract, dry, dull, systematic theology on a shelf. I want these words. My God rides upon the clouds in my deliverance. Oh. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight everyone against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. Now, how can that be? We have one nation here called Egypt. It would be one kingdom. How can kingdom be fighting against kingdom? First of all, God loves doing this to enemies, doesn't He? Setting them against each other. The Israelites sometimes would just stand and watch. And the Lord would say, just stand and watch. I'll take care of the rest. And men that had gone through basic and advanced training had lived together in the same tent for the last four years while on an expedition would kill each other. And the whole force would melt, the Bible calls it, melting away in front of their eyes. And so that was going to happen to Egypt. But now the Lord had a vehicle to help that in the days leading up to Nebuchadnezzar coming down there and crushing them. Because Esarhaddon and Asher Banapal of Assyria, the last two kings of Assyria, the son of Sennacherib, the grandson of Sennacherib, in order to try to keep Egypt under control, broke it into 20 different kingdoms. This is all known in history. Broke it into 20 kingdoms, but they did not get along well. Because when a king has a kingdom, he wants to expand its boundaries. And so they fought against each other until Somaticus won. Remember, I've already mentioned him. He won. But they're fighting against each other, so they're destroying themselves from the inside out. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes, a cruel lord, over them. Because the Bible says, He is my terrible one of the earth. 
And so we apply the terrible ruler over the Egyptians in verse 4 to be Nebuchadnezzar. But by the time Nebuchadnezzar got there, those people had already seriously destroyed themselves and reduced their power by their infighting because they had been broken into 20 kingdoms by the last three kings of the last three kings of Assyria blasted Egypt. Blasted Egypt. You just, it's, it's another study for another time because this one is the burden of Nebuchadnezzar coming because we're going to put it in agreement with Jeremiah and Ezekiel because remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel wrote 100 years after Isaiah and it was still to come what he was going to do. God's going to destroy the industry of Egypt. He first of all took away their spirit. So they fought against each other. Kingdom against kingdom. They're no longer united. They're no longer courageous. They're looking to their gods and it's not working. So we come to verses 5 through 10. And the waters shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up. Wow, that is the Nile River. And they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and flags shall wither. The paper reeds by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brooks shall lament, and they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. Moreover, they that work in fine flax, and they that weave networks shall be confounded, and they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, all that make sluices and ponds for fish. The industry of Egypt will be destroyed. First was the spirit. I love our God. He is so thorough. And the way he writes his judgment on the enemy of his people, I'm going to take away their spirit, then I'm going to take away their economy. And so it's verses 5 through 10. Now let me share something with you here. There is a sermon that I preached a long time ago, and I think it has developed into more than one sermon, called Famous Last Words. Because the Bible has a number of occurrences of famous last words. When some man said something, the Lord heard it, and so the Lord judged him in kind. For instance, I often use the, the issue of the Titanic. When the Titanic sailed, there was a sailor overheard saying, even God couldn't sink this ship. That was a known statement about the Titanic when it sailed on its maiden voyage to New York. Even God couldn't sink the Titanic. It was called the unsinkable Titanic because of its watertight compartments that only went up so far. That only went up so far. That only went up so far. And so when the bow of that ship was gouged by that iceberg, it took on water and tipped it down so that the water went over the first wall of the watertight compartment, took it down a little bit further, went over the second wall, and when they went to the engineer that had designed that ship, on board that ship, he was able to calculate on paper in a minute how many minutes they had left before it would flounder. Right. Because the Lord hears. Look at Ezekiel 29. Now we have a young man in this assembly that loves the last famous last words, and so I've been waiting all week to see Jonah's face. Jonah Unger's face. I couldn't wait for him to get here this morning to share with him that the Lord had shown us another famous last words. This is Pharaoh Hophra. Pharaoh is a title. Necho 
is one of the pharaohs in the Bible, so he's called Pharaoh Necho, because Necho's his name. This is Hafra. It's in the Bible as well, Pharaoh Hafra, in one word. But here we go. This is four chapters about Egypt, and here's how it starts. Verse 3 of Ezekiel 29. Speak and say, thus saith the Lord God. Oh, I love those words. We don't want to believe anything unless the Lord God said it. Speak and say, thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I want your attention. I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Oh, that is not smart. Before I go any further, let me just waste another couple minutes about the Nile. Do you know that you get to see things now that no one ever got to see before? Do you know that in 10 minutes, I was able to take a helicopter tour of the Nile from Lake Tana to Egypt? Just type it into YouTube. It's a, did you, I went rafting for a change. Yes, the way I like to go rafting. Watching it with a camera on board. That was bad enough. When you look, and Brother Jim has looked at a map, a satellite view of Egypt at night when the lights are on, 96% of the population of Egypt lives within four miles on either side of the Nile because there is absolutely nothing else. It's that Nile with that massive delta, 150 by 250 miles at the end where it dumps in by seven rivers into the Mediterranean. It drains the entire Hartwell Lake every 10 days. There's so much water flowing through there. But it's, it's phenomenal to see all that. The river is so, Egypt is so dependent on that river. Everything is around the river. Can you tell by these words? The industry was all about that river and the water of the Nile River coming down from Ethiopia through Sudan into Egypt. The, the Blue Nile is 3,000 miles long. The White Nile is 4,200 miles long from the, from the rivers that supply Lake Victoria. And Brother Zach has been at Lake Victoria in Uganda. Sarah as well. You know, you don't even know that there is a Lake Victoria. It's the third largest lake in the world in Uganda. And it supplies the Nile. It's, it's, and the Blue Nile has 75% of the water carrying with it all the nutrients off the, the highlands of Ethiopia. Down, in, down into Egypt and form that massive delta. But uh, the whole nation is dependent. I'm, four miles on each side, everyone lived. 96% of the population is within that close of the Nile River. And Pharaoh Hophra said, it's mine. I made it for myself. Okay, this is, this is Ezekiel 29. That was verse 3. Look at Ezekiel 29, verse 9. Now let's get verse 8, because we want those words. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon thee, and cut off man and beast out of thee, and the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste, and they shall know that I am the Lord, because he hath said, The river is mine, and I have made it. See, God heard that. If you're going to say it, don't let God hear it. I hope you get that. 
and don't write me any text this afternoon. I knew what I said, and I hope you know what I said. Verse 10, Behold, therefore, I am against thee and against thy rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from the tower of Syene, even unto the border of Ethiopia. I'm going to trash it by taking away the water of your river. You ought to read the history of the Nile. The Egyptians, I'm just going to use two numbers, okay? I did read them. The Egyptians had to have the flooding of the Nile greater than 12 feet and less than 16 feet. If it was under 12 feet, it wouldn't accomplish what they needed to have done with all their canals and brooks that they had built off of the Nile. If it was over 16 feet, it would wash it all away. They would starve in either case. Credible dependence on a river and to say that it's yours? You want to give God the glory for the Nile River if you live in Egypt. I thought you'd enjoy that. Back, back to Ezekiel, I mean, back to Isaiah chapter 19. Jonah, we have another one. Oh, Lord, we love your word. We love your word. We love your judgments. And so when a man says something like that, we agree. Thus saith the Lord God, you're against him and you're against his rivers. And you're going to take them away. And you can understand these verses. These aren't difficult. The river's going to be wasted and dried up. And to what degree it was the Lord's supernatural work, and to what degree it was Army Corps of Engineers, verse 6 includes them, and they shall turn the rivers far away. They had done this before when they, clo- when they diverted the Euphrates in order to get into the city of Babylon. Why should this surprise us? doesn't surprise me a bit. You say, well, can we read about it in history? We can't read about everything in history. I want to tell you something. Historians know so little, and archaeologists have uncovered so little, they don't know. For instance, if you turn to chapter 20 and verse 1, it says that Assyria had a king named Sargon. Do you know that for 2,500 years, that one verse was the only evidence in the world that there was a king Sargon of Assyria? For 2,500 years until 100 years ago. Then what did they find? That he was the greatest king of the Assyrians, Sargon II. That's what they found. They They don't know. So you can't ask to confirm everything in the Bible. Do you know what we do? The Bible's true. We don't know about you. We'll, We'll let you catch up if you want to. And so they're catching up all the time. Did you know that for thousands of years, people ridiculed the Bible because there wasn't a Hittite empire? And then 150 years ago, they found out that the Hittite empire was huge. It stretched all the way around the eastern end of the Mediterranean up into Turkey. It's huge. They still say there was no Darius the Mede or Belshazzar. Anyway, I don't care what they say. They say that we came from monkeys. And the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and us. And he thought that it was pretty good. Very good. So you can understand these, these verses. They're brooks of defense. Do you know what it would be like for an army trying to get through all their canals? Just, just try to visualize all their canals and an army trying to move. There weren't drones. I'm sorry, some of you are so young that you think that everybody's had drones forever. There weren't drones, there weren't airplanes, there weren't helicopters. And so was, they're called brooks of defense. Not only did they supply the nation, but they were an obstacle for any army to maneuver through. Credible. There it is. There it is for you. The paper reads, you know papyrus, ever heard of it? The paper reeds by the brooks, they made so many things out of that, they could make boats 
out of this. Do you know how good the Indians became at making canoes out of birch bark? This is out of bulrushes. You say, where is that in the Bible? We just read it in chapter 18 about bulrushes. Do you need another evidence from the Bible that that's a boat used by Egyptians? Who? Jochebed made a little ark out of bulrushes and floated her son Moses out on a river. We're just looking down through these verses. We understand that the fishers, the, the fishermen, the fishing industry is all gone. Verse 8, they're going to be mourning that cast their hooks or their angles into the brooks. They're lamenting. They're spreading nets. They're languishing. Those that work in fine flax grown in the uh, silt that's dumped on the shores by the flooding that, that from the flax that weave networks and all the fancy clothing and the linens of Egypt will be confounded and they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, all that make sluices and ponds for fish. Everyone that had little places for fish where they could grow fish to harvest them, look what it says, they're going to be broken in their purposes thereof. So we come to verse 11 in Isaiah chapter 19. And I'm going to read five more verses to you. Because this is God ridiculing the wisdom. He destroyed the spirit. He destroyed the spirit of Egypt. Then he destroyed the industry of Egypt, and now he is going to ridicule the wisdom of Egypt because they were known as a wise nation. After all, they could make a triangle, couldn't they? They could make a pyramid, couldn't they? They could make a sphinx, couldn't they? They could figure out the flooding, couldn't they? And maximize the flooding of the Nile. So they were considered a wise people. Well, here's the Lord. Here's our God in whom is all wisdom. Any wisdom the Egyptians had, God gave it to them. Verse 11, Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they? Where are thy wise men? And let them tell thee now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts hath purposed upon Egypt. Amen. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noth are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. The Lord hath mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggereth in his vomit. Neither shall there be any work for Egypt which the head or tail, branch or rush, may do. I'm going to shut them down. They will not be able to figure out anything. I have deceived them. They are like drunken men staggering in their own vomit. This is the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, this is what I will do to those that they call wise. Do you know that we are living in a similar judgment right now in America, where they have seduced Americans to believe contrary to everything the Bible has taught and what nature itself has taught until the last couple of decades. It's a, we live in this time. There's a famine for the Word of God, and there's a seduction, and they are so ignorant about the origin of the universe and the origin of man and relationships and, and marriage and abortion and unions and on and on in authority and how things ought to work. This is God's judgment. And there are verses like this in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul quotes 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he mocks and he says, where is the scribe? The apostle Paul does. Where is the disputer of this world? Where is the textual critic? Where are those that want to sit in judgment on me? I've made them foolish. This is our God. I love him. I love him. Do you want to go online and see if you can ask for an Egyptian or an Assyrian examining the liver of a goat to determine which direction their army ought to take? That's in the Bible, too. Do you know what's in the Bible? Okay. As long as you know to look at the, to look at the innards of a goat. Maybe a full moon helps. Maybe I haven't tried it in a full moon to try to get direction for my life from the innards of a goat. And so what does the Lord have to say? Zoan was one of their big cities. Noph was one of their big cities, Memphis. And the Lord just makes fun of them down through here that he's going to ridicule the wisdom of Egypt. They will not know what to do. When Nebuchadnezzar comes upon them, they didn't know how to handle Esarhaddon. Asherbanipal of the Assyrians, they didn't know what to do. And God's just going to keep pounding them. Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, trashed Egypt. Do you understand that I'm going through successive empires? Trash them. Then Alexander the Great came and defeated them and built. He took over a city and renamed it Alexandria to the west. Keep that in mind when you look at beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Alexandria is beyond all seven branches of the Nile dumping into the Mediterranean and built a library there. And the Ptolemies took over. Then the Seleucids took over in Syria and they just kept fighting. Egypt just kept getting pounded, pounded, pounded. Then Augustus came. Caesar Augustus and defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra and took Egypt for himself. Just kept on pounding, pounding. Don't mess with God's people. Is the, is what we, we should get comfort from this. That the Lord doesn't forget and he loves me. If anyone tries to hurt me, and you know the devil's tried to hurt us, and do you know where he's going to spend eternity? In the lake of fire. Right. Do you know what the Bible says about the lake of fire? It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Thank you, blessed God. He thought that he had got a burden on the children of God that would send them all to hell. Do you understand my use of the word burden? The burden of Egypt, the burden of Babylon, the burden of sinners. But there's another Adam that came on the scene and that is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he delivered us from that burden. Right. My mother taught me a little song, a little chorus when I was a little boy. I'm so happy, and here's the reason why. Jesus took my burdens all away. Amen. Once my heart was heavy with a load of sin, Jesus took the load and gave me peace within. Now I'm singing as the days go by, Jesus took my burdens all away. Amen. Anyone in here ever hear that one? Okay. I do not like spending many hours a week reading the burden of this and the burden of that, the burden of this and the burden of that, and knowing that I have a burden equal to any of them were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Egypt, didn't know, Egypt didn't know anything compared to what I've known in my life. So my sins are greater.
So he ridicules the wisdom of Egypt. Then God is going to reduce them to a base kingdom. It doesn't use those words right here. This is verses 16 and 17, but it does use those words in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's judgment of Egypt. I will reduce them to a base kingdom. They were a glorious kingdom once upon a time, but I will reduce them to a base kingdom. They've been a base kingdom ever since. Verses 16 and 17. In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Every one that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. Now that is a unique verse. Do you appreciate that 17th verse? Judah is going to be a terror unto Egypt? Little Judah? It's no longer 12 tribes. The 10 tribes have already been taken captive. It's just little Judah. But why is Egypt going to be terrified? Because the Lord of hosts' hand is being shaken over the land of Egypt for account of his people. Jeremiah's word came out of Judah that said, you will either submit to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, and what king in his right mind that has a big army is going to submit to a foreign king like Nebuchadnezzar? They didn't want to do it, but they knew God's hand was upon them when Nebuchadnezzar took up march and crossed the Euphrates River and came down to Egypt. Then they knew they were in trouble. Oh, brethren, this is so... When you go read Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 27, entire chapters where God lists every nation that he has given to Nebuchadnezzar, his servant. I'm not sure if I have this exact reference that I want. Give me just a second because you'll like it if I find it. Okay, I can't, I can't find it right offhand. I, there's, there's, a many, there's a lot of verses. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. And he gave him all the nations of the earth. He gave him Tyre. Tyre is an island city state on an island about a half mile off the shore, right there near Israel. And they have a Tyre that's on, land, on the mainland, and they have a Tyre on the island where they can retreat to, and they had a great navy, the Phoenicians in that area. They had a great navy, and so they could escape to the island and be protected from a, a land siege. Well, Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years besieging Tyre because God gave him Tyre, and he did win the victory eventually by starving them on the island. He did win it. But God felt, listen, this is all in the Bible. God felt sorry for them, and he said, those men... Their hair's all off. Their shoulders are all peeled. Don't forget scattered and peeled. They're all peeled. I need to pay him. His army has not got adequate wages because the Tyrenians, the wealthiest city-state on earth, fled with their navy and took their wealth away from the island. So it was not captured. And the Lord says they didn't get paid properly. Egypt is the wages. Honestly. Egypt is the wages. Go on down there, Nebuchadnezzar, and pay all your men handsomely for spending 13 years in the siege of Tyre. It's in the Bible. I just can't find it at the moment because there's a few too many verses in front of my eyes. 
Thank you, Lord, for these kind of things. In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and the land of Judah be a terror unto Egypt, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to be at the doorstep, and they're going to know why they didn't submit to him. In fact, they subverted him. When Nebuchadnezzar put a king in charge of Jerusalem, I hope some of you are familiar with these events. They looked to Egypt for help, and Egypt put a different man in charge of Jerusalem, and God read them the riot act for that, and not submitting to the rightful authority of Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar had the perfect authority for the city of Jerusalem at that present time to put his king in charge of that city. Their wages. So we come to verse 18. I read verses 18 through 22. In that day... This is another day, because this is the gospel era. It should be very easy for you to understand. If you read from verse 18 down through verse 25, we're going to have five occurrences of in that day. Because in that day is, is, is set by its context. You can't be, if you run back in that day, how far will you run it back? Will you run it back to verse 16? That's the only other occurrence in chapter 19. Why won't you run it back to chapter 18 and 17 since there were no chapter divisions in the Bible? I'm, I'm making fun of something for you to see the point. How far will you run in that day back? Because we're going to have a string of fives in that day describing the gospel era of, gen, of Egyptians being converted, Assyrians being converted, Israel being converted, the three of them no longer having any difference among them. This is a blow against dispensationalism second to none. That the Jews are not superior to the Assyrians or the Egyptians, but they are three. They're three equal peas in a pod in the words of God right here in these verses. But first of all, the first five verses, 18 through 22. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior, and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation, yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them, and shall heal them. And then we have the highway verses that close out this chapter. We understand these verses right here to be descriptive of conversion of Egyptians. We do not look at these and say, well, Alexander came and delivered them from the Persians. The Persians sort of delivered them from the Babylonians, or the Babylonians sort of delivered them from the Assyrians. No, we don't run that way, because when we have this much correct worship of the Lord God and Him accepting it, that this is real conversion. And these in that days in consecutive verses are tying it together to there being this final blessing in verse 25, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. When did Assyrians and Egyptians and Israelites become equal in the gospel? 
When the Apostle Paul said, the middle wall of partition is broken down between us, there is no Jew or Greek. It's, in, it's incredible. But the, the New Testament tells us that. So with the spectacles of the New Testament, we look back at this and see that. Five cities, literal cities, five cities became converts. That's a number. That's a modest number put for the many cities of Egypt that there would be a decent amount of Egyptians converted to the gospel. Now, if you've read Acts chapter 2, and I'm, I'm trusting that you know Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, was there anyone there from Egypt? Oh, yeah. How about west of Egypt? What's it called? Libya. Were they, were they there from Libya? Yeah. How about a city in Libya, way over, called Cyrene? Anyone there from Cyrene? Does the Bible tell us in Acts chapter 11 and verse 20 that the way Antioch of Syria heard the gospel was because men of Cyprus and Cyrene took it from Jerusalem up there? Yes, it does say that. Acts chapter 11 and verse 20. Who carried the cross of Jesus? Simon the Cyrenian. Traveling back and forth. Do you know what you do when you go from Cyrene to Antioch of Syria? That's a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Go look it up. Why is it called Antioch? Named after Antiochus. What's its next door, next door city called? Seleucia. Named after the Seleucids. It's just, it's beautiful. This is a prophecy, and you know we've run into this many times since we started the book of Isaiah that we'll be going through a chapter of judgment and there might be one verse inserted into that chapter of the gospel era or two verses or three verses. And here we have a number of verses that this hated nation that has so many chapters written against it, many would convert. Many would convert. Now it says that five, five cities that's, that's just a modest number for the many cities of Egypt. There's nothing more that we should figure out about that. We don't know. And nothing else is said in the Bible about five. But it says that there would be a city called the City of Destruction. I want to tell you that under the reign of the, the generals of Alexander the Great, when the Seleucids in Syria fought against the Ptolemies in Egypt, and poor Israel was in the middle, and Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, desecrated the temple, the legitimate priest, the legitimate priest was Onias IV. He fled to Egypt and got, got Ptolemy Philopater to approve of him building a city and a temple patterned after the temple in Jerusalem. Everyone knows this. And he thought that the, the temple in Jerusalem be overthrown. And so there were a lot of Jews in Egypt because they had fled to Egypt for help over the years. A lot of Jews in Egypt. And so he thought that he would get the loyalty of the Jews there to come to his temple in his city. But they wouldn't accept it because it was a counterfeit. Now listen to this. When Vespasian and Titus invaded Palestine, they knew about that city of Onias. And to totally demoralize and destroy the Jews' religion, they leveled Jerusalem and the big temple 
and they leveled that city called Leontopolis that had the temple of Onias IV. Wonderful. And so there's this little tiny reference in Isaiah 19 that says there's five cities that are going to take on the language of Canaan. Now that doesn't mean they went to language school and learned how to speak some Canaanite dialect. That's the pure language of gospel faith. That is what it is described as in Zephaniah. When you learn a new language, it's the gospel language of a new faith. See, otherwise, you're taking a metaphorical passage and making it literal. As soon as you do that, are you going to make everything little, literal? That it was just five cities that converted and others that didn't live in a city didn't convert. I mean, where, where will you draw the line? It's the pure language of the gospel. Who wants to speak a Canaanite language? How's that going to make them closer to God? Wouldn't it be Hebrew? It's the gospel language. And so we can work our way down through these verses. And uh, they're wonderful to look at. And they're going to swear to the Lord of hosts. That's not swearing by the Lord of hosts. Swearing by the Lord of hosts is an act of worship. Swearing to the Lord of hosts is an act of submission. And do you know what we do when we're baptized? We swear allegiance for our lives to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of hosts. They're not going to look to the, the idols that they've made any longer. They're going to turn to the Lord, and the Lord's going to receive them, the Lord's going to heal them, and they're going to come back to Him, and then He's going to build a highway that I've just referenced to you. In that day there shall be a highway, verse 23, out of Egypt to Assyria. These two nations hate each other. Look at, we've just read, a, we're going to read about it in chapter 20. Look at, in the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him the first verse of chapter 20, Assyria and Egypt hate each other. They hated each other in Hezekiah's time. After Hezekiah, it was the Babylonians who were basically Assyrians, and they trashed by Nebuchadnezzar Egypt. Then it was the Persians, and the Persians by Cambyses, the son of Cyrus the Great, trashed Egypt. And then it was Alexander, trashed Egypt. And then it's the Seleucids fighting against the Ptolemies. Then it's Augustus, trashing Egypt. They hate each other. The Romans are a different category. They're from across the Mediterranean. But all those other ones are from the north against Egypt. And the Lord's going to build a highway between those two places. And they're going to be going back and forth in the gospel day, sharing their unity in the Son of God and His finished work on the cross for them. And Israel's going to be in the middle, and there's going to be converts of the Jews, and there were, and there's going to be converts of the Egyptians, and they were at Pentecost, and there's going to be converts of Assyria, and they were at Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Go read Acts 2, verse 10, and see those nations all coming together on a highway of the gospel, and then from Jerusalem, boom! They spread that gospel out in every direction. Where did Apollos come from? Alexandria. Oh, west of the rivers of Ethiopia. This is the highway of the gospel. This is the gospel error. This is the straight and narrow way that leads to life. This is the gospel faith of the apostles preached and converting Assyrians, Egyptians, and Israelites. Turn to Zephaniah chapter 3 at the end of your Bible, my last reference. 
Zephaniah chapter 3. This is just one of many. I, I hope that in our study of Isaiah, and if you read your Bible, you're going to see things gelling and more pieces of the puzzle coming together. I, I hope that will be the product uh, by us seeing the, that the, the unity of the Bible and what it teaches. And if you'll remember that timeline, some of these minor prophets are prophesying at the same time as Hezekiah. Not, not later, because they're later in your Bible. It's because they're minor that they're later in your Bible. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 8. Are you ready? Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language. There it is. That they may call all call upon the name of the Lord in the gospel to serve him with one consent. One consent. All these nations coming together, converts from them, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants. And there was a major Christian center in Ethiopia. The eunuch came from Ethiopia, and he went back to Ethiopia rejoicing, and he was in a governmental position in Ethiopia. Even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. For they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Amen and amen.